Before we begin, a content warning. This episode includes explicit language and a description of an overdose experience. From the San Francisco Public Press, you're listening to Civic, where we investigate the policies and institutions that govern our lives. It's a narrative that's gripped the media and the political class. San Francisco's policies have enabled out-of-control problems with homelessness and open-air drug use and sales. You look around, the city is not vibrant anymore. It's really collapsed because of leftist policies. Two people are dying of a drug overdose here each day, while people in charge just appear more and more frantic. Now the city is promising to clean up the streets with an old, familiar strategy, police crackdowns. They made the smoking of opium illegal, and this was done explicitly as an anti-Chinese effort. In this part of our series, we take a look at the city's history of policing drugs and how it might inform what's in store for our future. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and this is Civic. One of the things I find most endearing about San Francisco is how we celebrate weirdness. The city has always embraced lovable eccentrics, from the infamous Emperor Norton. Joshua Norton, a failed San Francisco rice merchant who lost his fortune and anointed himself an emperor, was known to put his thoughts into proclamations published by local papers. To members of the beloved Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, like Sister Unity, the message is that if we can be ourselves, looking this way, this creative, or this queer, or this individual, unique, other, in public, then there is room for you to be who you are, as you are, with no shame or guilt, and with love and joy for you. San Francisco's values encourage the view that everyone is deserving of dignity, rights, and respect. And that's informed a compassionate approach to policies in a slew of complex topics, including drug addiction and homelessness. As we talked about in our previous episode, San Francisco has embraced a harm reduction approach for substance use disorder. The strategy focuses on saving lives by lessening the damage caused by drug use, instead of helping people only if they abstain from drug use. In 2022, with rates of drug-related deaths on the rise, San Francisco's Department of Public Health released an overdose prevention plan that relied extensively on harm reduction. The plan includes provisions for housing, health care, clean supplies, hygiene facilities, addiction treatment, and safe consumption centers. Those are sites that would allow people to take drugs under supervision in case of overdose. The city has made good on some of those measures, like distributing the overdose reversal medication naloxone and deploying outreach teams to the streets. But service providers, health experts, and advocates all say that the city is falling short in some crucial areas. Now San Francisco is on track to surpass its highest rate of overdose deaths ever recorded. So city officials are turning to more draconian measures to address homelessness and substance use disorder. Compassion is killing people. That's Mayor London Breed at a Board of Supervisors public hearing at UN Plaza. The board's president chose that location for the meeting because on most other days, a lot of drug activity happens there. 
We have to push forth some tough love to change what is happening on the streets of San Francisco because it's too easy to get drugs, it's too easy to live the life that we see people living, and they are in turn dying, and it is under our watch. Force is going to have to be a part of it, whether people like it or not. It seems that people at the hearing didn't like it. The meeting had to break up early because the crowd got too rowdy. One upset woman even threw a brick towards the stage. A person in the crowd received minor injuries, and the woman was arrested. Breed was being heckled over a police crackdown on drug sales and drug use in the Tenderloin and south of Market. City officials announced the plan last April. Here's San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. We can't just arrest the dealers and then leave the people who are buying the drugs alone to do as they please and think that this is going to get better. We cannot allow this to continue on our streets, and we will not allow this to continue on our streets. Breed called on California's governor to help. He pitched in by sending in National Guard troops and the California Highway Patrol. Our governor has responded with what I think is going to be some tremendous support and help from the National Guard and from the CHP, coordinating and working with our police department and our DA to help us address the challenges around the open air drug dealing, mostly in the Tenderloin and the South of Market neighborhoods of San Francisco. I have said time and time again, we can't do it alone. The heavy reliance on law enforcement is a controversial approach that many health experts, service providers, and harm reduction advocates say will only lead to more overdose deaths. Sarah Short is a director at HomeRise SF, a housing advocacy organization. She's also a member of the Treatment on Demand Coalition. That's a collective of more than two dozen organizations lobbying for more robust drug treatment and harm reduction efforts in San Francisco. Mayor Breed, this is not an action movie with you as a star. That's what it just started to feel like, is like, this is a political stunt, you know, to look like you are a woman of action, taking care of, you know, it's Gotham and you're Batman or whatever, right? This is too much of a high stakes issue and too many people are dying and too many people need help for that to be the case, for this to be happening just for the sake of you know, gaining political favor. We hear a lot, actually, of people being like, well, what are you saying? We should just leave people on the streets to die? You know, you're saying we shouldn't be arresting people. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, what should we be doing? And it's like, you know what? I'm sorry, but we've been saying this a long time. We've been giving, providing alternative for the very problems, you know, whether it's actually about getting people the treatment or whether it's just getting people out of your sight there are non-law enforcement solutions at your disposal. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing that? And that's when you go to, mm, it's not the same kind of political theater, is it? You know, it doesn't have the same kind of resonance with voters and the public as bringing in the cavalry. I reached out to Breed's office for this series, but I haven't received a response. That Department of Public Health overdose prevention plan prepared back in 2022 advises against arresting people for using drugs. That's because a ton of research shows that the strategy is not an effective way to address substance use disorder. It may even lead to worse outcomes. 
In July, a study out of Indianapolis published in the American Journal of Public Health found that within a six-minute walk of drug arrests, opioid overdose deaths doubled. And a study involving 23 cities that was published last April reports that displacing unhoused people who use drugs can severely increase fatal overdoses and hospitalizations. That's because it severs connections to a community of people who can come to the rescue if there's an overdose. It can also sever connections to familiar drug suppliers, which increases the risk of accidental overdose since drug potency fluctuates enormously among varying sources. During a Board of Supervisors meeting last June, Supervisor Dean Preston pushed the mayor to follow the overdose plan laid out by the Department of Public Health. Will you follow your own Department of Public Health's advice and end punitive policies specifically arresting and incarcerating drug users that increase fatal overdoses, or will you ramp up these strategies, ignoring the advice of public health experts and causing even more overdose deaths? Mayor Breed. Here we go, another white man who's talking about black and brown people as if you're the savior of those people and you speak for them. I have a sister that I lost to a drug overdose in the city. I have friends and family members who have been lost in the tenderloin with no aggressive action, no changes to policies. Have you ever spent time talking to any of those same black and brown people who are addicted to drugs on our streets in San Francisco to understand their challenges and what they need and what we need to do as a city to turn their lives around. That is the focus of what I plan to do, regardless of what you read or what you see in a particular report, which is a overall view of what's happening. The fact is, it's not just services. It's also force. But people with experience say the criminal justice system can make life immeasurably worse. Gary McCoy is Vice President of Policy and Public Affairs for HealthRight360, which the city contracts to run treatment facilities. He had a severe substance use disorder before getting into recovery over a decade ago. I spent a number of years in and out of jail, court-ordered drug diversion program, and because I wasn't ready to quit, I just stopped going to those court dates. And I always had warrants out for my arrest. I had HIV at the time, which became AIDS, and it was very much untreated AIDS. I was ignoring what was going on with my health, and I was afraid to go to my doctor's appointments because I didn't want to get caught on a warrant going to my doctor's office. And so, you know, it's just dangerous and deadly to think that this thing that we know has failed and we've tried for so many decades is going to be the new approach that somehow works this time. The fear of arrest also led McCoy to take drugs in isolation. And having no one around when something goes wrong increases the risk of death. I overdosed twice in a public restroom in a, at a gas station, two different gas stations, with no supervision. The first time it happened, I had never experienced an overdose before, and I was injecting heroin at the time. And I went to a bathroom at a gas station to use because I, I didn't have anywhere else to use. And I just remember feeling my head started to get really hot. And it didn't stop. It was progressing worse and worse. And my first thought was, oh, my God, this is an overdose. And then my second thought was, I better stash everything I have very quickly into the trash can because I don't want to get arrested. The gas station attendant saw that McCoy was having a medical issue and called an ambulance. And then 
the next thing I remember, I woke up, I was in the parking lot outside of the gas station. There were a number of EMTs hovering over me. I remember hearing one of them say, you should go check the trash can in the bathroom. Mm. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, they've been here before. And they wouldn't let me leave until I got an ambulance and went to the hospital. And if I refused, they were going to call the police. <laughs> so I got an ambulance. I went to the hospital. I saw a doctor. The doctor couldn't understand why they would send me there. He was, yes, you had an overdose. You're fine. Go home. And so when I left, I went right back to my dealer's house and I bought everything they had because that was my disease of addiction. That was, you know, it wasn't, oh my God, I almost died. It was, oh my God, this stuff is amazing and I'll just use less of it. On August 31st, National Overdose Awareness Day, opponents of the police crackdown staged a protest on the steps of City Hall. Preston, who represents the Tenderloin, was at the rally. He told me the arrests are not only leading to more overdose fatalities, but also increasing rates of violence in his district. We have the police, the sheriff, the Cal Guard, the California Highway Patrol, the DEA. We're arresting people who are addicted to drugs and are using drugs. Our jails are fuller than they've been, right, in years. It's not working. No one's been connected to treatment. Overdoses are increasing dramatically, and crime is up. So at some point, I hope people will refocus on evidence-based solutions, and we can start doing things that are going to work to make the community safer. They are poking a hornet's nest. There are increased turf wars that are occurring. When you have, like, a raid here and another group moves in, I mean, we've had gunfire and a murder in the middle of the day, and a shooting. Just doing a bunch of street-level enforcement against users and dealers with no comprehensive strategy, not implementing the public health side of this, right, is a road to disaster. We're on that road now. If I have another conversation with someone pushing the war on drugs who somehow is trying to explain why this time it's different, like, yes, we all agree that the war on drugs has been a complete failure, but what we're doing here is actually different. And but they can never explain how it's different because it's the exact same thing, right? We have tried this and it doesn't work. Even people who disagree over solutions acknowledge that the war on drugs was a travesty of justice. That's because heavy-handed law enforcement and prosecutions devastated communities of color. The War on Drugs was launched in June 1971, during the Nixon administration. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. It turns out that Nixon wasn't acting out of some public health concern. He had more sinister motivations. Yuel Haila is the director of the Criminal Justice Program at the ACLU of Northern California. During a meeting of the Harvey Milk Club in early August, he explained what Nixon's war on drugs was really all about. Haila referred to an April 2016 Atlantic article titled Legalize It All, How to Win the War on Drugs. I'll read this quote by John Ehrlichman, who was Nixon's assistant for domestic affairs. And he says that, quote, 
You want to know what this war on drugs was really about? The Nixon campaign in 68 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew that we could not make it illegal to either be against the war, the war in Vietnam, or to be black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So this is the historical context out of which the war on drugs come, right? And in terms of vilifying people who use drugs, in terms of functional intended purpose of the war on drugs, you know, that's where it comes from. Mass arrests devastated entire communities as felony convictions made it nearly impossible for countless people to get their lives back on track. But in truth, Nixon's actions were just the continuation of a long tradition of attacks on racial groups disguised as drug crackdowns. And it all started 150 years ago, right here in San Francisco. Laura Thomas works in harm reduction policy for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. She talked about this history in August 2019 during a lecture that was broadcast for UCTV. There was never a time when a group of experts, whether they were medical doctors or sociologists or even lawyers, sat down and said, which substances are the most harmful and let's make those illegal, and which ones are the least harmful, and we're going to leave those as legal drugs. That has never happened, and there is nothing about which drugs, which substances are legal and which are illegal that is based in any kind of scientific process. The very first laws passed criminalizing the use of a substance were passed here in San Francisco by our own Board of Supervisors in the 1870s. And what they did was explicitly they made the smoking of opium illegal. And this was done explicitly as an anti-Chinese effort. It was an effort to control the Chinese population. They didn't make purchasing opium pills in a pharmacy illegal. You could still do that. They only made the smoking of opium illegal. And it was because this was perceived as a Chinese cultural practice. There was also a lot of very racist tropes around white women consuming opium with Chinese men. And and, you know, again, these racist ideas about race mixing and the sort of need to protect the purity of white women. And that ended up being the model for all of our subsequent laws of prohibition. So the laws against marijuana were targeting Mexican workers in Texas, for example, Mexican migrant workers. And then, and this is the New York Times, the headline says, Negro cocaine fiends are a new southern menace. There were all of these, and again, these are the same very racist tropes that we find in more modern coverage of it made them behave like animals, for example, and they were impervious to police bullets, and police needed stronger, bigger guns and stronger bullets. So again, this is both like sort of basic American racism combined with the association of a drug with a particular culture or race or ethnicity, and then making that drug illegal as a system of racial control.
The war on drugs ramped up during the 1980s and 90s. This is when First Lady Nancy Reagan famously promoted her Just Say No campaign. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. This was the beginning of the crack cocaine era. Low-income communities, particularly urban communities of color, were hardest hit by the introduction of crack. And there's a reason for that. People were very legitimately concerned about what crack was doing. But what often goes unspoken in this is that this was also an era of great economic displacement where industries and capital were moving out of these urban areas and people were moving to the suburbs. So Crack wasn't necessarily the cause of the economic despair in these communities as much as sort of a symptom of it. From the 1950s to the 1970s, the growth of suburbs throughout the country drew mostly white residents, while people of color populated urban areas. That so-called white flight also left urban cores starved for investment and government services. And in the 1980s, the country experienced its worst recession since the Great Depression. The national unemployment rate climbed to around 10%. And in the 25 largest cities, including San Francisco, unemployment soared to nearly 15%. By 1983, the number of people living below the poverty line in large central cities had increased by over 3 million. The media rarely, if ever, reported on this background of economic devastation. Instead, Americans heard endless news reports about drug-fueled gang violence in Black neighborhoods, most notably in Los Angeles. And that narrative helped fuel the mass incarceration of Black Americans, worsening the state of communities that were already in turmoil. Today, arrests and overdose deaths still disproportionately affect Black residents. While Black people are 5% of the city's population, they make up a third of people who die of overdose. And according to the police department's activity report, in the first quarter of this year, Black people made up about a third of arrests and a quarter of police stops. Here's Laura Thomas. It's worth saying that these racial disparities hold true here in San Francisco, where, for example, African Americans make up somewhere around 5% of the total population of San Francisco, but they're well over 50% of the people in our county jail tonight are African American. And studies have also researched by the Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice also found that young black women were most likely to be arrested for drug charges here in San Francisco, even though, again, they're a tiny, tiny proportion of the population. San Francisco police have a bad track record when it comes to racial bias. Seven years ago, the department received a damning review by the Department of Justice following six fatal officer-involved shootings in one year. Federal investigators recommended more than 270 reform measures in five areas, bias, use of force, community policing, accountability, and recruitment. The police department's progress report states that they've reached, quote, substantial compliance with 245 recommendations so far. But according to last year's activity report, 
Black people in San Francisco were 25 times more likely than white people to have police force used on them. When the Black Lives Matter movement swept the country in July 2020, Mayor London Breed supported defunding the police. She announced a $120 million budget cut affecting both San Francisco's police and sheriff's departments. I want black boys growing up today to thrive because we chose to change how this city and how this country treats our young black men, not as a statistic or an inevitable tragedy, but as an important part of our city's future. But she made a dramatic about face on police funding while announcing a crackdown on drugs. Here she is in December 2021. And it's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies, and less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. In 2022, Breed secured $51 million in extra funding for the police department, bringing its total annual budget to $762 million. And she's proposed another $50 million boost per year in the next two-year budget. We will expand recruitment strategies and work to retain officers. We will give them the resources they need. Yes, we must hold officers accountable but we must also respect the hard work they do every day and respect them. Some people believe that law enforcement does have a role to play by ensuring that a police presence on the streets deters violence. But numerous people told me that there just weren't enough beat cops patrolling the Tenderloin, even though the SFPD has a precinct right in the heart of the neighborhood. Alexandra Prey is an attorney with the Public Defender's Office who lives in the Tenderloin. I walk through just groups of young men huddled around. I think I know what they're doing. And I just don't know where the police are, right? Like, I don't understand how they're not just coming in and be like, okay, break it up, move along. It was widely reported in 2021 and 2022 that San Francisco police officers were on a deliberate work stoppage. News outlets reported that residents were complaining about officers ignoring crimes, some committed right in front of them. One resident said officers even discouraged her from reporting a violent crime, telling her the district attorney wouldn't file charges anyway. The department's chief, Bill Scott, responded by saying he didn't condone his officers' behavior, but he did empathize with their frustrations over seeing people they arrested back on the street. It's hard to weigh the impact that this alleged police negligence had on crime, but it's not hard to believe that it might have caused criminals to become more brazen. Studies show that the certainty of being caught by police is a much more powerful deterrent than a severe punishment. By the end of 2021, arrest rates were down to only 8.1% of reported crimes. That was the lowest it had been for 10 years. Allegations of police inaction boiled over last April when Tenderloin business owners protested. Here's a report by KPIX News. 
the Tenderloin Business Coalition, a group of mostly business owners and property owners, says the root of the problem is the open-air drug dealing happening because of ineffective policing. The group calling the city out, saying it's abandoned its commitment to provide safety, and in bold, the group wants a refund of all sales and property taxes paid this year. So far, 150 have signed the petition. A few weeks later, Breed announced a police crackdown, and Governor Newsom sent in the troops. Breed's critics say her tough-on-crime approach is a politically motivated attempt to save face. Here's Supervisor Dean Preston. It's a reactionary approach that appeals to sort of the worst instincts of some folks who don't really understand how you effectively address a public health crisis and appears to be more aimed at trying to win probably unwinnable headlines, positive headlines in Fox News or national media, instead of trying to focus on what works and what doesn't. And it's not a mystery. And, you know, what I would say is there are a lot of people who are frustrated about the situation in San Francisco. And I'm one of them, right? And especially with climbing overdose death rates. I mean, it's absolutely tragic. But the thing is, we know the things that will work to reduce the crisis and and put people on a better path and a path to recovery. And we know what won't work. And so to spend millions of dollars on what we know won't work might grab a headline or two, but it's not a solution to anything. Right-wing media and politicians have been using the challenges that San Francisco is facing as a foil to attack liberal values. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is running for president. Here he is in an ad released last June. You look around, the city is not vibrant anymore. It's really collapsed because of leftist policies, and these policies have caused people to flee this area. Breed dismissed DeSantis' remarks as a political ploy in an interview with KTVU. Unfortunately, in politics, the old playbook of focusing on the negative and targeting places like San Francisco have been, unfortunately, the norm. But Breed herself has suggested that a liberal permissive attitude is to blame. Here she is during a public hearing last May. Open-air drug dealing and drug using and the challenges of poverty and the crime and the violence. The folks who work here and the people who experience these challenges every single day, they deserve better. And we can't keep speaking out of both sides of our mouth. On the one hand, we want change and we want to hold people accountable. And on the other hand, we're willing to let people get away with murder. That was a few weeks before DeSantis's remarks. A few weeks later, Breed was striking a more positive tone. We can't continue to put ourselves down or to criticize a lot of the things that are going on. Because like any other major city, San Francisco has problems. It has problems. But unlike any other major city, San Francisco has been a leader and a beacon of hope and a place that dreamers come and a place of possibilities. Meanwhile, the police crackdown continues. By September 3rd, police had made 467 drug-related arrests, and only two had accepted treatment. Police Chief Bill Scott was grilled by Police Commissioner Max Carter-Oberston about the meager results during a commission meeting on September 6th. It seems like so far the strategy of arresting people for using drugs has not been successful, and I'm just wondering how much longer are we going to continue experimenting with this. Until some other entity other than the police department deals with this issue, it really doesn't leave us with much of a choice. No other department has the ability to do anything with that except for to talk about it. 
And I think people are just fed up with the talk. And you will never hear me say that the arresting of these folks is going to solve addiction. But, you know, these are still crimes that we can't just turn a blind eye to and say it's not working. This city did commission a blue ribbon commission to come up with ideas in the very recent past. The San Francisco Police Department was part of that. And there's an eight-point plan out there just collecting dust with some other ideas. So well, I, I've read I'll it. Just, I've I'll read just, it, and again, we've all we've read it. Okay, it's a, it's a nice report. Shannon Knox is the executive director of the San Francisco Drug Users Union. She explained why people who use drugs may be unwilling to accept treatment. By and large, drug users are scared of the cops because the cops put them in jail and they remove them from their community. So I don't think that they're a trusted presence for entering treatment, nor do I think cops have any interest in that being their job. It's not in their job description, connecting people to treatment. They're law enforcement. Sarah Short said she believes the end goal of rounding people up is to coerce them into treatment. They've been telling us very almost gleefully how often people are refusing the services that they're being offered. So... That is because they're trying to set it up so that they're well justified in forced treatment. One of the loudest advocates for coercive drug treatment is Supervisor Matt Dorsey. As we mentioned in previous episodes, Dorsey himself is in recovery for drug addiction. He's also a former communications director for the San Francisco Police Department. Dorsey told me that he supports harm reduction. But he has a broader take on the notion. We do have to take the principles of harm reduction seriously in that part of it is reducing harms to the community. And I would challenge people to ask communities if they feel that the city is taking seriously the harms that they're suffering as a neighborhood. So I I think there is a way to make custodial and coercive interventions, life-saving interventions. The approach that... In the research that I've done on cities that have had successful interventions around open-air drug scenes, there are coercive interventions that are a part of that. Dorsey admits there's a hitch to his plan. Are we set up for it yet? Probably not. He's right. Service providers for people being sent to jail say they're already over capacity and understaffed. David Moroff is CEO of the San Francisco Pretrial Diversion Project. That's a nonprofit organization that works with prosecutors, defense lawyers, and judges. They give people the option of having their charges dropped after committing to a year or more of counseling, drug treatment, education, and other programs. Maroff explained the current dire situation of San Francisco's jails at a panel discussion hosted by the Harvey Milk Club in August. From a, a jail perspective, I mean, it's as grim as everything else. The jail population is up over 1,000, which is the highest it's been in about three years. And it's been steadily increasing. We were hoping we'd see a kind of peak, but it's not. And as it's increasing, fewer people are being released. So people are staying in jail longer as well. Medical care is available through Jail Health Services, a division of the Department of Public Health. But Moroff told me that's not the same as drug treatment. Yeah, there's also a lot of compelling data about how people are more likely to overdose when they're released from treatment or when they're released from jail. You know, there's an urgency when you've been locked up and you haven't really gotten treatment. Jail is not treatment. 
Jail might be an opportunity to detox. It may be an opportunity to come down and cleanse, so to speak, but it's not really treatment. So when people are coming out of that environment, they're just as likely to go and you know, meet their needs as they are to seek rehabilitation. And on top of that, they've been traumatized by being in a locked environment, which is not conducive to long-term rehabilitation. Sarah Evans is Global Director of Harm Reduction at the Open Society Foundations. She balked at the notion that arresting people with a substance use disorder is a good way to get them into treatment. Come on. Going to jail is not the answer, right? I'm sure that it's possible to find people who will say, I went to jail and it changed my life. I know people who will say that, and that is their experience, and I respect that. And I respect those people for changing their lives. But by and large, we also know that that is not the experience of people. Going to jail is a setback in a person's life. It's not a step up. And I'm not naive. I recognize that it is a very complex social situation that will require intervention on a lot of fronts. Picking people up involuntarily and putting them in jail would not be a starting place for me. Health experts in San Francisco also say that if people are forced into treatment, that's just going to take away the already meager options for those who want help with their substance use disorder. Kelly Knight is a professor at UCSF and associate director of the Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. I don't want to ever want to have the conversation about involuntary versus voluntary choices until we have the conversation about the gap in the services that are needed for people. There is not enough treatment, voluntary or otherwise. So what we really have is a massive treatment gap in this country. And that's true in California, and it's also true in San Francisco. Nevertheless, Breed recently announced that people who are twice arrested for drugs would now be sent to involuntary treatment through a specialized court called Community Justice Center. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the Community Justice Center and the various options available to prosecutors when people are arrested for drugs. We'll investigate what works and where it breaks down. It's maddening to have a district attorney's office who says that their goal is to clean up the streets, but we have this proven way to actually make like substantive changes and not just temporarily fix the problem and we're avoiding it. I'm Sylvie Sturm and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional music was supplied by the Blue Dot Sessions. The Emperor Norton clip at the top of the show was originally on NBC Bay Area News. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who is also the program director at KSFP. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. This episode is part of a series on San Francisco's overdose crisis and prevention efforts underwritten by a California Health Equity Fellowship grant from the Annenberg Center for Health Journalism at the University of Southern California. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.